On this show, I tend to deal with the big global threats to humanity that we face, including climate change. Now, climate change has landed in my hometown as an issue to be dealt with, and I want to talk with you about that today. There's been a new natural gas pipeline proposed in Springfield, Massachusetts, that uh, I and many others are trying to stop. And so today, we're going to look at that process. And whether you live in Massachusetts or elsewhere, I think you'll enjoy this episode because it's a chance to look up close at the transition away from fossil fuels toward the renewable energy that we need. And in your hometown, you can get involved in pushing your energy companies toward renewables. So you might get some good ideas from this episode. To help us think this through today is our guest Vern MacArthur with the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Martis. Thanks for joining me. So I want to remind you that you can hear this show in a bunch of places on YouTube, on Spotify, and many different podcast players. And I hope that you'll subscribe and like and all that good stuff so you can be aware of when future episodes come out and we'll stay in touch that way. So today we are talking about climate uh, about methane, about the, um, the transition to a green economy and how that's all playing out. So with this show so far, I've been focusing on these big global catastrophic threats that humanity faces and often the large global systems that are needed in order to address them. But then in the middle of all this work I'm doing, um, both with this show and trying to start a new grassroots organization that tries to reform the United Nations, which you'll be hearing about in future episodes, I've been doing all this work on the international front, and then all these issues just landed in my backyard. And locally where I live in Springfield, Massachusetts, there's a new gas pipeline that's being proposed where there's new fossil fuel infrastructure potentially being put in, which is just a really bad idea. So despite my busyness on the global front, I've started to get a bit involved in this local issue because it's incredibly important. And in doing this, I've gotten to know today's guest who um, is smart and wonderful and is spearheading a lot of these efforts. Vern MacArthur is with the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition and has really whipped up a lot of local activist energy and activity to try to stop this pipeline because we think it's a really bad idea. 
So today we're going to talk about, um, you know, the global context, but also what's happening here with this effort to stop a pipeline. And you in your neck of the woods, wherever you live, might need to engage in some similar efforts to try to stop um, fossil fuel infrastructure where you are. So maybe it'll be a good learning opportunity for you. So Vern, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having yeah. me. Glad yeah. to uh, have a chance to share my experience and the issues we're involved with. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be a good chat. So right now you are spearheading some of these efforts with the Springfield uh, Climate Justice Coalition. What motivated you to get involved with this kind of work? Um, who are you around all this? Like, what's in your heart? What what jazzes you up and makes you want to do this work? Uh, well, it goes way, way back. I would say that the thing that put me on this trajectory uh, started uh, right after I finished college back in 1964 and joined the Peace Corps. And I uh, went to Ethiopia and was a teacher and administrator in Ethiopia. And it, it shifted me to when I was done to going to graduate school in community psychology and social action, as opposed to more of a research publication kind of trajectory. So I've been involved, you know, as a core part of my work. I've been I've retired 15 years ago, but I was on the faculty of Springfield College here in um, Springfield, Massachusetts for 25 years, the last 25 years of my career, just involved with faith-based organizing, community economic development, always a piece of uh, trying to make the world a better place because the school I was teaching in, uh, School of Human Services, we taught uh, as a weekend program um, for working adults who worked in social services. You had to be at least 25 years old and with two years work experience before you could join because the curriculum was built around sharing experiences and developing an understanding of how you develop <clears throat> critical social change. You know, why did the people walk into these agencies that we staff and how can we strengthen community and change barriers in ways that help people live more fulfilling lives? So that was a general thing. I've been involved in community stuff for years. Um, I got involved with climate justice. I've been involved with social justice work the whole time. Climate justice, the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition, Coalition started about eight nine years ago. I'd been out of town for a while. I came back and thought, well, let me get involved with this because a lot of my teaching, actually, I had taught a course around kind of deep ecology, you know, the whole question of what, what kind of values and, you know, worldview do we have that lets us create this system that's destroying the planet that we live on had I mean, that had been part of my teaching for years about unsustainability and all of that kind of stuff. So, and people that I knew here in Springfield and had worked with a long time, very exciting people were doing this. I, so I jumped on board about seven, eight years ago. Um, I think attracted both 
by the focus on dealing with climate and its consequences, and in particular on climate justice, you know, how the climate change is gonna, going to and is impacting um, low-income uh, BIPOC communities, uh, least responsible for generating the problem is gonna get the biggest impact. And that was the explicit focus of the work that we were doing. Yeah, nice, nice. So um, I am just assuming that our listeners know about climate change and believe it's happening and care about it. Um, so, I, I mean, we don't need to do an exhaustive background on climate change, but I'm curious for you, what concerns you most about it? As you contemplate a future with a warming climate, what do you worry about or what, um, I don't know, what fires you up about this? Uh, well, <laughs> I know it's a big question. I, I can, it, I, maybe it's impossible. I don't know. No, no, it's not impossible. I worry about the survivability of the human race. You know, if we reach a point where it kicks into these, what do they call them? The loops, the feedback loops that are no longer controllable. I mean, already it's, you know, globally impacting places in the world where people can't live anymore, um, generating lots of climate refugees. Um, it's, it's amazing to me to be hunkered down here in, in New England where the impacts are much more subtle. Um, and I feel like life has gone on pretty much as it has. Uh, warmer winters and apparently maple syrup from this area is going to be changing as it gets warmer but you know you look around the world at the devastation in like bangladesh or <clears throat> a lot of the refugees that are happening globally are due to climate stuff of the, the refugees waiting at our borders uh, our border with mexico comes from they can't grow the crops they used to grow um, unless they get way up in the mountains there because of global warming. So it, it's not just the political dysfunction down there that's the problem. It's, it's climate stuff as well. And it's just heartbreaking to think of that, how that's devastating people's lives. And the contrast with my comfortable living here is something I really try to pay attention to. You, you just, um, I'll just add a tidbit related to the sort of climate refugees that you just mentioned who can't make a living farming anymore. That's just going to intensify. And there's been research showing that we could have as many as 2 billion people on the planet that need to move because they'll be in places that are too hot to live. You know, I mean, we've never seen 2 billion people move before. So I really don't know how we handle that. So yeah, neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, keep this climate under control then and maybe not have to deal with that. Um, so this pipeline that we want to talk about um, is sometimes known as natural gas, which it carries, but I don't find it to be too natural. Um, Whoever came up with the term natural gas was quite the marketer because <laughs> um, it's, it's uh, kind of a deceptive name. 
But, you know, basically we're talking about methane. And I think over the course of these decades, climate changes get gotten talked about, we've often heard about carbon dioxide emissions from our, you know, running our cars or power or whatever else. But methane, I think, is more newly hitting the awareness of people. Um, can you just talk about methane and its role in all this and why it's so dangerous and worth uh, dealing with? I know that uh, methane is somewhere between 20 and 50 times the greenhouse gas that carbon dioxide is, although it also, if you stop putting it up there, it clears out very quickly. So if you can shut off, I mean, we had one of the early struggles that we had in Springfield here was pushing Columbia gas, which was bought out by Eversource gas, who we're dealing with now on this pipeline thing. They were bought out after Columbia gas blew up <laughs> Lawrence, Massachusetts, on that pressure-related explosion up there that destroyed, I think, uh, close to 100 houses, killed one person. Uh, it was just uh, the worst kind of thing that can happen. Um, but um, we had been pressuring them, and they were responsive to shifting their focus in repairing leaks in the pipe system to the larger leaks. They've been focusing primarily on those closer to buildings, which would seem to make sense, except the leaks uh, aren't particularly dangerous. Uh, most of the dangerous ones they dealt with. So we pushed them to do to, to repair the ones with the larger leaks, putting the most methane up in the air. And so they shifted their priorities and we're moving on that front. Um, so it's it's just uh, uh, a very destructive gas and I, I don't know i think it may be a higher and higher percentage of so-called natural gas the more that gas is fracked gas because now i think nationally about two-thirds of the gas supply is now from fracked gas fields which of course are devastating at their source what they do to the land and the water and putting bad chemicals down in the ground to, to loosen up the shale or probably not shale, but loosen up and free up the liquids down there to be piped up and pumped out to our stoves. Um, and that same methane, you know, gets burned in our households in gas stoves. It's one of the things that I learned a few years ago through this project was that the, you know, the same gas that's in the pipe is what we burn in the kitchen and unless the stove is vented directly outside well vented it's putting toxins um, and pollutants in the air that we breathe in the house exacerbating respiratory disorders asthma in particular um, so the longer this goes on the higher the percentage of the gas is going to be fracked. <clears throat> so the worse it gets in terms of its impact, both on the climate and uh, on our individual health, community health also. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm interested in um, this issue of leaks where um, I'm just curious what the status is. I mean, I know that 
gas as it's brought to Massachusetts can become can come from several states away through pipelines or even some comes from Canada and it's going you know hundreds of miles through these pipelines so it leaks at the source when it's pulled out of the ground and then probably a bunch of places along all these pipeline systems and then even in homes in you know basements or whatever um, you know, you mentioned that the, the gas company has worked to improve these leaks, but is it possible to have a leak-proof system? Is that even... No, no. It doesn't strike me that you could even do that with so many miles of pipeline. No, I think you know, yet, even when they're first built, gas pipelines leak. I mean, the molecules of gas are small. So it leaks all along the way. And... Um, with the transfer stations, they maintain some balance of pressure by venting gases. So they often will have to just put some of the gas, release some of it into the air to, to adjust the balance of the pressure in the pipelines. But in Massachusetts, as one of the oldest infrastructures in the country, so there also are leaks from you know decaying uh, infrastructure. So those kind of leaks can be fixed and reducing the amount of gas that goes up in the air. Now, one of the <laughs> contradictory things about that is about 10, 11 years ago, Massachusetts passed this law <clears throat> to encourage gas companies to repair leaks. They guarantee, the law guarantees them a 9.7% return on any new infrastructure that they build. They don't get uh, that kind of return guaranteed on just on repairs. So it tends to incentivize the gas company to replace whole new pipes rather than repairing leaks. And that's part of the financial incentive, uh, clearly, for this project they want to do now in Springfield of putting this brand new pipeline downtown. Yeah. Well, let's dive in and talk more about this new pipeline and, and why are they doing it? What, what's in it for the gas company? I mean, of course, you know, to make some profit, but why are they claiming this is necessary? Uh, well, this is a piece of a broader statewide project, not statewide, but in about two or three different places in Massachusetts. They call the Columbia Reliability Project back when Columbia Gas owned it. And a piece of it out here was to uh, put a new set of pipes um, up and down the valley, the Pioneer Valley, um, up about 30, 40 miles north of here to cities like Northampton, Holyoke, East Hampton. Uh, those places turned it down, said we don't need the gas. Uh, so the remnant of that is this um, one piece that's left in Longmeadow, which is immediately south of Springfield, where they're going to put a transfer station to take the gas off an interstate gas pipeline owned by Tennessee Gas, and then run a pipe from Longmeadow about five and a half, six miles to downtown Springfield to the pumping station that's down there that pumps the gas out to the consumers. 
Right now, they say the, the only gas supply into Springfield is the one pipeline that's coming across the uh, Connecticut River underneath Memorial Bridge. Nice, beautiful old bridge. About a 60, 50, 60 year old pipeline that's bringing the gas supply from the west side of the river into downtown Springfield. And they saying, you know, what happens if something breaks that supply? We're going to have like 58,000 customers without gas for a long time. So we need a backup pipe. We need redundancy in the system. Now, and they're not saying that, that we need any larger supply of gas. There's no increasing demand as they talk about it here, although in other contexts they're talking about expanding <laughs> the consumer, the customers of gas. So they said this is supposed to be a backup pipeline. There are a couple problems with that. One, it's planned to be four times the size of the pipe that's currently feeding into Springfield. Not clear why they want to do that. Makes me wonder if they have some other longer term um, plans of extending that pipeline and maybe to ports that ship it overseas because I know that the gas market is really growing in Europe um, and which is eventually going to have an impact on gas prices here too. But the other problem is, and it's higher pressure, about three times the pressure. It just doesn't make sense as a backup. And it's not really a redundancy because both the old pipe and the new pipe will go through the same pumping station in downtown Springfield to feed it out to our customers here. Um, so <laughs> Wade raised this question with them in a meeting, and I think they hadn't been prepared for this spotting this they said so oh well you know we have that there are duplicate valves in this so if you lose one you got the other and i'm thinking you know how was how was whatever like climate event flood or storm or tornado going to decide which valves to hit and which ones to leave now they're talking about they have special hardening techniques where they could put stuff underground um, so, but it's, it's just ridiculous because <clears throat> it's not redundant. It goes through the same pumping station and the, the pipeline across the river has already survived one direct hit from a tornado. Um, and isn't there old principle tornadoes never strike twice, twice in the same place or <laughs> right. was that like, <laughs> yeah, it could be, I don't um, know. It also depends on what part of the country. Some places seem to get hit all the time. So it doesn't make any sense. The gas isn't needed. It's going to raise rates for customers. That customer base will be shrinking um, as the transition off of fossil fuels accelerates over the next five to 10 years. I mean, Massachusetts law says we've got to be reducing greenhouse gas releases by, I think, 40% by 2030 or something like that. I mean, state law this really is contradicting um, in our view state law well the power company i imagine will um make the case that if we have an outage 
then this is a big emergency because people are not going to have heat in the winter and people are going to die from cold weather and, and this kind of thing. Um, if we just take them at face value, are there other ways that we could deal with that concern other than a pipeline? Are there other ways to get people through an outage that don't require making new fossil fuel infrastructure? Are there backup plans we could use? I don't know. I'm thinking space heaters or, you know, I don't know what. I mean, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, first of all, it's been this way for 50 or 60 years. I'm not saying that under normal, under old normal circumstances, this might be a reasonable thing to be thinking about. Right now, the redundancy that's needed is aggressive shift to renewable energy, you know, putting money and time and resources and corporate clout into expanding infrastructure that's going to last decades when we've got to be off it in five to 10 years just doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> so I think they should be ready in case something happens, but um, it's going to take another year, they said, for the permitting process and then one to two years to build the pipeline. So we're talking three years at least before this is even there as a backup. Um, and hopefully as a backup, it doesn't take out the pumping station because it would take out both of them. You know, so the, the alternative is to, I mean, this elect, Eversource has got an electric arm and a gas arm. And it seems to us that the company that could be leading the way um, into transition uh, towards electrification and be, you know, meeting their own corporate goals in terms of profitability. But apparently Eversource... <clears throat> In the background is leading an attempt by gas companies to resist electrification. It's exposed by some group at Yale, you know, some publication at Yale identified, got some hands on some memos talking about how they're in the fight for, of their lives and strategizing about how to meet, you know, how to respond to community demands and that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, that's part of what baffles me here is the fact that Eversource is both a gas company and an electricity company. So I would expect this behavior from a purely gas company that's maybe about to go out of business soon, but Eversource could just so easily push electricity. I mean, they're selling both gas and electricity to all these same customers. They could really give a nudge to say, hey, you know, electrify your homes and we're going to give you a bunch of clean energy. It's, I don't know why they don't do that. Well, they say they are. I mean, you know, um, who knows what the corporate relationship is between the gas and the electric side. I mean, <clears throat> they may be competitive with each other, even though they're under the same umbrella. Um, and clearly they're not thinking about the bigger picture or they would, be moving that direction. The, the other, you know, thing to be careful about Eversource is they're very deceptive in, in their presentations. I mean, they are doing things like supporting 
solar panels and exploring other options, geothermal, you know, experimental projects. And they put all of this, um, you know, wind, uh, they put all of these efforts out in their public stuff, but basically they're, the alternatives they're really pursuing are other things to pump through the pipes that they have now, hydrogen among them, uh, which apparently is leaks more than the gas that they're putting through now because the molecules are smaller. You know, I, I forget the exact dollar figure, but I seem to remember this new pipeline project would cost around thirty million or something, twenty some million. It's like many uh, forty. They're saying forty oh, plus 40. or minus five, hmm. depending on which route they choose. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm just imagining how many solar panels you could buy for that. Or wind turbines. I mean, I haven't done the math, but I think you could buy a lot of green electric infrastructure with that money which i think would be in the a step in the right direction yeah well one of the things that becomes clear i mean our position Springfield climate justice coalition position right now is don't put new stuff in stop we're not telling people you got to get off gas <clears throat> even though that's the implication that needs to be spoken to and the broader reality is we've got to figure out how to make the transition. And that is never going to be done one homeowner at a time or one resident at a time. Right. If you think about a city of, uh, I don't know how many households here, it's 150,000 people, lots of apartment buildings, rentals, a lot of home ownership. I mean, you think about, I think there are like 50,000 customers of Columbia Gas. Think about 50,000 homes getting off of gas. You're not talking about lining up at, you know, at the electric company to get heat pumps <clears throat> for your house. You're talking about, you know, something that's supported by state policy, federal policy with subsidies and technical assistance. I don't know what it would be, but it's, it's a massive enterprise um, mm -hmm. that requires real expert leadership and consolidation of resources to do that kind of thing. You know, I've got to say two things. It's a shame to be spending our time fighting this damn thing. On the other hand, in some ways, I consider it like almost like a gift because the issue of transition off fossil fuels is not an abstraction here. There's a real decision that people need to make and actions they need to take. And it's an opportunity for helping people turn and look more closely at the urgency of making this transition um, and of getting involved in doing it. <clears throat> well, what does that local conversation look like so far? I mean, you're out there talking to a bunch of, you know, neighbors and residents about this issue. And just tell us what kind of efforts you and the coalition are doing to raise awareness about all this and, and oppose it. Uh, well, among other things, we are doing, having some conversations. I've been content. We have in Springfield a network of neighborhood councils. The city is divided up into, I think, around 20 neighborhoods each of which has a council or sometimes called a civic association. Made presentations at a number of those. 
uh, they are very different. In one, I'm giving this presentation about the pipeline and its risks and the need to transition. And I, this guy, I guess, Zoom. So you, one of the things about Zoom, you can see everyone's face. And this guy, I could tell, thinking I was speaking something ridiculous. The end of it, he says, you expect me to heat my 5,000 square foot house with electricity? How am I going to pay for that? And I'm thinking, 5,000 foot square house? If you have How a house that big, you can afford it. Living in there. Yeah. You know, my house, which is not small, is 2,000 square right. feet. Right. You know? I know. Um, maybe he's got a couple family. I don't know. But the other question was, what do you think it's going to cost to heat it by gas in three, four, or five years? Because the price of gas is going up, too. And when we say electrification, we're not talking about the old baseboard heat. We're talking about much more sophisticated heat pumps and a variety of things like that. So the sum of the response is kind of not wanting to look at it, kind of business as usual. And I've found in, in some of the lower income neighborhoods where there's much less trust in the uh you know, government and institutions. Yeah, we don't want that. We don't want another pipeline coming into the city. But in all cases, we've got to deliver a message that talks about how this is going to impact them and what they have to gain, you know, by um, opposing the pipeline and by beginning to move in a, in a new direction. So that's part of our challenge at this point is to be able to to find ways to lead with the vision. So we're, we're, we're moving towards something, not just saying stop something. Right, right, yeah. Who are the, um, I guess, government officials or agencies or elected leaders who have the ability to stop this? Like who, who should be the target of our communications as citizens want to weigh in and, and push on this? Who should they be contacting? Who who can make a difference here? Well, they should be contacting the, the Springfield City Council, their uh, ward councilor and those at large. The council, city council, has to issue a permit to dig up any streets in Springfield. Um, now, it turns out the state agency can overrule any local opposition. So it's not uh, a fail-safe stop. But it is really important that we organize in Springfield to make it clear that the city as a whole does not want this, that there's major opposition to it. And the city council is an important focus. The mayor's office would be an important focus. He's He's kind of remaining silent, as he often does on these controversial issues. I'm told that he kind of basically, if the state says it's all right, then it's all right. The real, it's, so it's really at the state level that has some ability to stop this thing. The state agency called the Energy Facility Siting Board, Siting, C-I-T, no, S-I-T-I-N-G. Right, 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 yeah. Board. Um, has to get permission to approve the site. 
of uh, both the transfer station in Longmeadow and the pipeline and all the arrangements around that. Um, <clears throat> so the, the you know the the state administration could could help stop things. Um, our focus has been on trying you know to make the issue EverSource itself um, rally people around that and and I mean they've they're just not trustworthy they recently were were fined by the state of connecticut and 1.8 million dollars i think for false advertising uh about uh, shifting to gas um which violated uh, both advertising and giving misleading information they've been putting cartoon book propaganda in a couple of city elementary schools our invisible friend i have not seen the actual material but it was circulating a few years ago i think in somerville or cambridge one of those and um, they they stopped it and then south hadley just more recently apparently uh, was approached to use the same stuff um, trying to get kids hooked on the idea of this nice, friendly, natural gas coming into their house. Um, so we're focusing on just making it clear that the city is opposed to this, or that there is substantial uh, opposition in the city to this, both from citizenry and from the official bodies. And um, trying to begin eventually as a, a statewide issue event, eventually bad air that comes from pipes doesn't know city limits, you know, it goes other places and contributes to air pollution around the state and up and down the valley for sure. So this type of issue of trying to oppose pipelines, I've been hearing about in the news and other places, you know, some are in, in cities, some are these large um, pipelines that traverse, you know, state by state. Um, I mean, what can we learn from, I guess, this growing movement of people around the country and elsewhere trying to stop these things? I mean, do you see um, sort of best practices emerging in how to stop a pipeline? Or, you know, people elsewhere, do you have any suggestions for them on if they have a pipeline coming to their community, what can they do to stop it? What, what are some of the best tools we have? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I think they gotta, they gotta take a read on their city council, on their state, you know, look at where the decisions get made. Um, I think increasingly, I'm thinking that in the medium term, really beginning to surface uh, a lot of the exciting alternatives that are happening. You know, Ithaca, for example, just recently uh, enacted uh, a law saying that they were gonna, they were going to by 2030, I think, electrify every building in Ithaca. That's Not just huge. municipal buildings, every building. I mean, there, you know, the other, the, the other thing about this is that when, when I'm in the middle of these fights, I can feel like it's just these fights going on and nothing's going to change. There was all kinds of really interesting stuff um, going on at the grassroots level. 
<clears throat> so um, things like, you know, community solar. I mean, I think part of it, a lot of it is just to begin to paint publicly a picture of where we need to be and how much better it can be than where we are now. Uh, you've got to be able to speak to immediate challenges to homeowners and residents about stopping a pipeline, what that would mean. But it's got to be in the context of, of a better picture. I mean, clean air. I mean, Springfield, as you probably know, was, was a few years ago labeled as the asthma capital of the United States because of the level of asthma and the air quality here. It's not an abstract thing. Clean air can really make a difference. And green jobs, if we really move. Someone told me recently that a welder in Maine now can make $107,000 a year as his salary, uh, as I think in the context of some uh, movement to green energy and the infrastructure changes there. You know, so the jobs and the air and and uh, renewable energy also it can almost inevitably gets localized more, more local control of it. So you don't have these huge interdependent um, national systems where if something goes wrong in Oklahoma or Texas, it impacts up here. There's local control; it can be democratized um, better. It's cleaner, it can create more. I mean, those kinds of painting that kind of picture, um, seeing it ourselves, and then painting that kind of picture um, and making and connecting it to the reality of people's lives, which, which will be a different connection depending on, you know, economic status and community conditions and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Science has got to be rooted in that, yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing if Springfield, Massachusetts could be the next Ithaca? I mean, this pipeline happens and it's forcing a conversation about climate change. I mean, what if our city could then be that next one that says, hey, we're going all electric. We're going for it and doing the right thing. That that would be a beautiful outcome here. Yeah, I know. I mean, it could be, you know, we, we as you know, uh, recently won a 12-year battle to keep a biomass plant out of, industrial-sized biomass plant out of Springfield. And we won that in, in part because of the environmental justice uh, laws now that prevent, <clears throat> you know, the, that kind of impact. Um, it could be. I mean, it will take some political changes to be able to do that. But I um, um, understand... I don't know where it stands right now, but 350.org Massachusetts was pushing legislation that would fund a, a 50 unit ho housing unit transition off of uh, gas to electricity at either like Worcester or Springfield. I mean, that kind of demonstration project begins to talk about the scale at which this has to happen you know and if if that still if that could happen and come into springfield it could be a real stimulus for saying look you know this is the kind of stuff we need to be doing and when it happens 
um, your lives are a lot better than they used to be. Yeah. Sign us up. I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, it'd be perfect. So, um, something that's interesting about this whole conversation about natural gas last several years is that it has often been pitched as a transition fuel because it's greener than, you know, the coal and the, the oil. Um, do you hear that much? I mean, are people still trying to convey it as that positive, um, greener fuel? Or have people come uh, to their senses on this? I haven't heard. I, I haven't heard it so much. I think there's good. more recognition that it's not good when it leaks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know there's. I I was hearing this maybe a few years ago, and and I hope it's died off. But even in response to climate change, people would say that we need natural gas because it emits less carbon dioxide when it's burned. And so they claim that it doesn't warm the climate as much because there's less climate, uh, you know, less CO2 emissions. Um, I'm hoping that this issue of leaks and methane directly hitting the atmosphere is now, um, you know, people are taking that seriously and understanding it. So, I mean, I guess I just wanted to air that out because I've been hearing that um, message for the last several years that natural gas is a, a greener, cleaner fuel. And I guess I'd want to just refute that in case anybody still get that in their head. So, uh. yeah, no, right. Well, we can, <clears throat> I don't know the science behind it, but putting methane in the air can hardly be greener than putting carbon dioxide in the air, you know, and, um, yeah, you know, the other perspective on this, um, I was reading a book recently about <clears throat> this transition, making the transition. It was saying, you know, the notion of net zero is not a good notion. Net zero carbon emissions still puts carbon into the air, right? It just is balanced by something else. So it's better than what's happening. We don't have space for that. This stuff has to be kept in the ground. You know, so I don't know there, there may be uh, arguments to, to look at and to combat around this as a transition fuel, etc. But uh, most of that is just rationale for continuing as long as possible on it. And we should be talking about just how do you keep it in the ground? Um, yeah. In these international negotiations led by the United Nations, various countries put forward their uh, pledges or promises on what they're going to do to fight climate change. And I've heard serious um, criticism of these because most countries are relying on these offsets where you know, we're going to still burn some fuel and we're going to offset that emissions by planting some trees somewhere or protecting some nature somewhere. But then as you add up all those plans, we don't have enough space to like uh, plant that many trees. Like there's just not enough land on earth to do it that way. 
it's just not gonna work if you're relying on offsets to do it. You have to actually stop the fossil fuel if we're gonna get this done. So I think that's kind of what you're highlighting. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, also from the biomass struggle, we, we learned <clears throat> biomass looks attractive because, well, it comes from a, a tree, so it can grow back. So it's natural. Well, it takes 10 years at least for a new tree to grow to the size to absorb the same amount of carbon that the old tree released when it was burned. It's just... And again, apparently in Europe there's a huge market for biomass, and which is devastating forests in the southeast of the United States. Um, yeah, they're chopping down actual forest, like killing nature to burn it. Yeah. It's kind of silly. So again, I, you know, but I would say I keep reminding myself when I get into, into the urgency of stopping this stuff <clears throat> and, and feeling the powers arrayed against us in trying to do that, is we also got to look at all the really interesting stuff that's bubbling up from the bottom that we don't read about, you know. Um, I just read something recently about how rapidly f rainforest can regrow when you get the people out of there. It came back, some, some foresting came back much quicker with more diversity than anyone expected. You know, there are all kinds of efforts going on at the grassroots level to, to live and, and more sustainably. And uh, part of what we, Part of what I see involved in this pipeline struggle is to help people see that as well as the problems from, you know, coming from the uh, burning of fossil fuels and the need to stop the pipeline. Yeah. Well, anyone listening who is near, you know, in Massachusetts and wants to weigh in on this issue of the pipeline with you know, public officials and others. Um, in the show notes for this, I'm going to give you some links to the Springfield uh, Climate Justice Coalition. They've got a really good website with a bunch of information about this issue and even contact information for your elected officials and such. Um, and I encourage you to weigh in and just do some of that. Um, you know, take an hour and dash off a few emails to officials. It would be a huge help. Um, that's on my to-do list for um, soon. And um, just stay in touch with the issue and be involved. Um, you know, something interesting about local efforts is that you don't have to amass a million people to make a difference. I mean, to make a difference at the national level, you need millions of people to weigh in. But on a local issue, you actually don't need a lot of people to really raise the visibility of something and, and make something happen. So um, let's do it, you know? Yeah, and get a yard sign saying stop the toxic pipeline. <clears throat> and we have a fact sheet. You can find access to both of those on the website. Um, sign up for a sign and I'll put one in your yard. Um, and we're doing standouts. Shelby has been part of our standouts at the X in Springfield. We stand out there uh, with signs and wave at our neighbors as they drive by. And, and, yeah. and mostly we get a lot more horns than we do negative. <laughs> 
That's that actually been really warmed my heart doing that, actually, because so many neighbors driving by are really encouraging. Like people, people get it. They're, they understand the importance of this. So that's, it's been very encouraging to me to see that. So, yeah. yeah so if they want to get involved, uh, they can let you know, they can you give them my email address, whatever. And people, you know, if you're local and want to get involved, it would be great to have you. And it is, you know, when, as we face this, uh, often overwhelming challenge of climate change to be having some way to act at your local level really helps the spirit <clears throat> it makes a difference at times where the bigger systems are unstable as we are politically and environmentally these days local smaller impacts reverberate and have an outsized impact so if you're feeling down join us on the street hold a sign <laughs> it does help to have uh, something to channel our angst and energy into, you know, yeah. some activity. So, right on. Well, Vern, thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. I'm enjoying getting to know you more through these efforts. And um, let's just keep up the good fight. Make something good happen here. Yeah. So. And I'll see you at the X. Week from uh, when? For week from tomorrow, right? <laughs> yeah, there we go. And listeners, thanks for joining us today. This has been really good to have you with us, and uh, we'll see you again soon. And until the next time, let's just be the best people we could be. All right, take care. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>